Yeah, sorry. I thought I felt something like fall on my head and I got a little freaked out. <laughs> but it was fine, I think. It's the the director spooking. Yeah, exactly. The director is haunting me. Yep. Yep. Hello there. Hello. I don't know why I said, <laughs> I don't know why I said hello there so weird, but <laughs> hello, hello, hello. No, <laughs> I don't have a glass to clink. And, I had, and, but it, like, I can try again, but it doesn't make, well. No, yeah. yeah, I think it's a little, I think we have to give that one up if we're being honest. I will find an instrument <laughs> next time. Beautiful. I've got a guitar. I could do a little like a uh, mariachi like strum <laughs> sort of thing to start us off. <laughs> Oh man, I wish I knew how to play the cucaracha. <laughs> so, what did we watch, Anna, this week? <laughs> you uh, suggested it. Yeah, because it looked cool on Netflix, uh -huh. and I was like, "Great, a new horror movie that has actually like decent actors in them in it." Yeah. So, I was like, "What can go wrong?" It's going to mm -hmm. be fine. It's going to be spooky. It's going to be in the country. It's going to be, I don't know, weird ghost thingies. Haunted house. Yeah, yeah. It's got everything. It, yeah, I thought that would be like crazy hillbillies living under the house or, I don't know, like amateur horror slash hills of eyes slash, I don't know, the witch or whatever. But... It wasn't. It was just a. Well, what was it, first of all? What it was was a sad horror version of Talented Mr. Ripley, but worse. Anna, I'm trying to get you to say the name. I know. Thing... <laughs> so, what we watched was things, things heard and seen. Okay. <laughs> so, a new Netflix movie starring James Norton and Amanda Seyfried. It came out. I think Netflix put it out probably a couple of weeks ago, if I'm not mistaken. A Netflix original movie. Yeah, it came out in April this year. Less than two weeks ago it yeah. came out. And I thought it looked cool. I watched the trailer. Mm -hmm. It looked cool and spooky. Trailers lie. As we learned <clears throat> from uh, Suicide yep, Squad, was, yep, trailers yep, lie. Yep. You would have thought that we would have learned, but apparently not. We didn't learn. Nope. We we didn't learn. Nope. 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 So, Sam, so, tell us what it's about. For everyone who hasn't seen this film, and I hope that's you listening, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to watch this film. Things Heard and Seen is a film based on a book called All Things Cease to Appear, by the author Elizabeth Brundage, I think is how you pronounce that last name. She's written quite a few books sort of in this vein and style. But the plot follows a woman, Catherine Clare, and her husband, George. And they're, um, I guess, I don't know, they don't say how old their daughter is, but maybe around five or so. Yeah, probably. It follows his family as George lands a teaching job 
in upstate New York. So they move from the city where Catherine has her job and her life and all of her friends and they have a like a great apartment in the city and they move all the way to upstate New York to a small liberal arts college so George can teach. And they buy this massive old farmhouse and George frames it as like, oh, it'll be a fixer-upper, kind of a nice project. It'll be beautiful and all of these things and we'll learn to love it here despite the fact that Catherine was sort of opposed to the move and didn't really want to leave the city and all of her friends, but did so anyway because she felt like it was the right thing to do for her family. And so starting from that premise, things in the house begin to get a little bit weird for Catherine, and she starts to see, uh, experience things in the house moving around and she finds a creepy old ring and she has these weird sort of visions. The film is at least starting out as a a couple moves into a haunted house, but that's not really the film. I kind of struggle to give like a summary or kind of a synopsis thing to like get people started because the first 30 minutes of this film are super misleading to how it actually plays out and what the film is. (laughs) yeah yeah the trailer supports the idea of it being like a traditional city family moving into the countryside buying a old house that turns out to be haunted and then turns the family crazy basically that is the premises that the trailer and the first half an hour or even 40 minutes kind of suggests yeah but then it just it devolves it it devolves and it I don't know. It's just, I, I think it tries to be artsy, but fails. Oh, it, like it's, it definitely tries to be artsy. It, you get a very pretentious feeling. Mm-hmm. Like, ooh, do you know this artist? And ooh, do you know this weird Swedish philosopher that thought mm-hmm. a different way about dying and the afterworld? And it just piles on. Definitely. I think our plan for this podcast is dear listener we're just going to take you through this film chronologically with how it begins scenes in between following all the way to the end and picking out key points that uh annoy us yes (laughs) just that that is accurate (laughs) i was gonna say to talk about but yeah no the things that made us angry things that don't make sense plot points that were completely just what the fuck is happening here So that's kind of the plan because there's no other way to really structure this because the film doesn't give you much of a structure to go on anyway. So that's what we're doing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Also, just to point out, I had a huge issue with the whole how the film looks in a way of the costume design and set design because the whole feel of the movie was already... It had this kind of like weird retro vibe. Like you can't really pinpoint into what era or what year they're trying to imitate. I was like maybe 70s. So I looked back and it says 1980, like in the film. It says that that was the flashback year. Okay, 1980. Okay, probably early 80s because there are not really that many people with like big hair. Like it's not late 80s clearly because there's no Madonna. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, but... It's just, it falls into that weird uncanny valley. It tries to feel old-fashioned by using old cars and old food boxing. But then everything else is pretty modern within the clothing. Yeah. Like it, And that kind of bothered me. 
Definitely. And I think that's a good segue into just this first scene, or not even really the first scene, but the intro, beginning credits, whatever you want to call them, like establishing location, character, time, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think it does a good job of that at all because like you said the costumes are annoying and despite the fact that the film says what year it is in the beginning we don't get any reminders of the time period besides at the beginning the one text slide of oh it's 1980 despite it being explicitly said to both of us in the beginning we both straight up forgot because there's nothing else in this film that points to it being 1980 you know like you said the costumes are just sort of generic vintagey yeah the costumes are in a way like if someone would have a um no not even that if because i was thinking if someone would have a theme party for 70s or 80s they would not be dressed like this because this is what people wear now and i mean just looking at how george dresses george basically dresses how someone dresses now Uh, i mean Maybe he wears slightly more sweaters and his coat jacket is a little bit more loose than you would expect nowadays. But, I mean, he looks especially dressed like like you would see today. And there's not really any good setting up of the year because what happens is immediately we go to this farmhouse and suddenly everything in the farmhouse is old anyway. So... It doesn't matter what year it is because the technology and all the items and everything in the house doesn't align with the year that we're flashed back to anyway. And that's just the the first of like all these disconnects that happen where the film begins as pretending like time is important with that text overlay establishing the time and then the next scene saying that it's the spring before that but then time never comes up again the only time like time in a way comes up is with the between segments in like fall spring yeah those slot between slides here and there but they really don't they're not relevant in any way to the story like you you yeah. notice if it's winter or not. Like it doesn't add anything on to, on the movie to have these weird, not weird, but like kind of artsy in between. Yeah, slides. yeah, for sure. There's nothing important about the seasons changing in the story itself, right? None of this matters. As artsy as this film is, there's not a focus on nature outside of its pertaining to artwork and paintings. And even then, there's not a connection with paintings during certain seasons or anything like that, you know? it's Yeah, because, like, the husband const- claims constantly being an Inez fan, who is, uh, like, an American scenery painter. The whole movie starts with, like, slideshow of his paintings of different landscapes, yeah. and then it transitions into an actual landscape and a car driving and that is basically the only time that they actually like focus on the landscape of the area itself you know yeah and yet it tries to make the whole idea of the landscape by stating which 
season it is more relevant when it's really not like the first half an hour honestly the first half an hour and yeah. starting from the intro i was really into the movie i was like yes this is gonna be exactly yeah. what i wanted this is gonna be maybe a bit into the jordan peele mm-hmm. kind of horror type of that not really scary but still like kind of critiquing everything and and being very douchey in a way but like douchey in a good way but it's yeah. just empty promises <laughs> yeah no this film is filled with and i think that's the point of us like go- going through it it's filled with all these things that are then immediately dropped and it's it can't focus on anything whatsoever. It wants to be clever and it wants to be artsy and it wants to include, you know, these thinkers and these famous painters and, you know, it's obsessed with art. Everyone in this town seems to be like an artist of some sort or like a a historian. There's the friend of Catherine who's a weaver and she and her husband collect artwork Catherine restores artwork supposedly George used to be a painter but we find out later that he didn't actually paint anything you know there's an obsession with writing as an art form even music the boy who comes to the house to help take care of the house and the lawn and different things like that he's a musician and he comes in sometimes to play the piano all these things get picked up and then dropped and then picked up and then dropped and there's no actual continuing to any sort of point with this stuff it's just put in there to be artsy but it doesn't actually do any work yeah Yeah. Right. So I guess after this intro scene, well, no, we didn't really even talk about the intro. (laughs) (laughs) We talked about, we talked about this title slide and how it's setting up these paintings that then get dropped later. But then we get this scene with George and it establishes the year is 1980 and he drives up to his house and there's blood dripping from the ceiling and he goes inside, he grabs his daughter and then cuts to, yeah, him running over a hill, which like, okay. But they make it seem like he's running away from the house and like shielding his daughter from something. And then the rest of the film from there on is flashback, building up to that moment in time pretty much until yeah. like the very, very end. Uh I find it so hard to make like any sort of points about this because none of this film makes sense. <laughs> yeah, because how they set it up, and in the beginning, why it seemed promising is this husband comes in and he grabs his daughter, and you know something terrible has happened, right? Catherine has probably been killed. Uh, or his wife has probably been killed. You don't even know his wife is Catherine yet. And you assume, okay, something in the house killed her or something in the house made her crazy, something like that. And he's painted as kind of a, a victim in this. He comes home and he's surprised, right? Well, we find out later that he's the one who killed her. So this scene doesn't make any sense at all because there's no one around for George to pretend like he's innocent and he already knows his wife is dead. So coming home to the house and being surprised to find blood and then running away from the house with your daughter clutched in your arms makes absolutely no sense because they're in the middle of fucking nowhere. Like n- no one 
sees him. It doesn't matter. He has no reason to act this way at all. And it's trying to be clever and make it seem ambiguous as to how Catherine got killed. But the only way it makes it ambiguous is by lying to you. It doesn't, it's not being clever. It's not showing you particular things to draw you in. It's just straight up faking something that wouldn't actually happen and doesn't make any sense within the context of the rest of the film. Yeah, it's just a catchy way to start a movie. Yeah, and so this opening scene is compelling until you watch the rest of the film. And then the opening scene kind of becomes a piece of trash. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of points in this film that hint to something or like start off as having really potential of being an interesting point or an interesting view on something or and it just the whole film is actually a huge clickbait everything that they're yeah. tossing into the story is just a clickbait of being like oh maybe this is no no it's not gonna go anywhere oh maybe this is a good fit to follow oh no it's also not going anywhere it feels like a bunch of people decided to make a horror movie because they found a cool house that looks a bit spooky, and then they wanted to throw everything they knew into that story. I think you're absolutely right. It's got a million different things that are dropped into it as potential directions, and it spends a whole close to two hours dropping all of these different potential threads to follow. And by the end, it can't effectively come to any sort of conclusion because it hasn't laid the groundwork for any single statement or theme or even compelling story arc. Like, there's nothing for it to latch onto. It hasn't effectively followed through on anything. It's spent two hours just dropping crap which doesn't really become obvious until... You're invested already. You're over halfway yeah, exactly. there. It doesn't become obvious until you're invested. You know, it takes any film time to morph into what it's going to be, right? Especially a horror film. Like, there has to be a lot of setup and dropping little things here and there. And it's only after, you know, about 45 minutes or so that you realize that, wait, we're not even... We don't even seem to be building to anything. Yeah, because like, the, the first 40 minutes, you're clearly building on something. They move into yeah. the house. There starts to be mm -hmm. some weird flickering. The kid starts to see a dead person in the corner. Very traditional horror thing. Catherine starts to find like an old family Bible on a shelf that has people's names crossed over and damned written on them she finds an old ring and starts seeing these kind of shimmers almost then reading about this swedish philosopher and mystic and theologist that spoke about um the afterlife and spirits in the 1700s and really you get that build towards that there is something in the house and there's something trying to communicate this with this like with this family that lives now there and you know that something probably prior has happened because that's something that keeps being hinted. But then it's just... It's... it's, it's, it's no words. 
It's just yeah, exactly. Well, we're getting this set up, and obviously, you have to take time for the family to move in and everything like that, and for spooky things to start happening. And then you get around like minute thirty. Catherine finds uh, a book by Swedenborg, the philosopher who has all these uh ideas like you said about um, spirits and the afterlife yeah. i did some research about swedenborg and how he claimed that he could speak with the dead with his superpowers and then um, interesting he was kind of shunned by the church because he wanted to start a new brand a new way to practice christianity and to combine it more with with the whole kind of idea of spirits being still with us and being able to communicate with them and this whole weird in-between. And this is something that the church didn't really appreciate. Uh, fun fact, apparently his skull is still missing when he died Swedenborg's. They just lost his skull? Yep. Wow. Okay. And I think he's buried in Sweden. In Uppsala, that would make if sense. I remember correctly. I could be wrong. But also, like, the whole the movie relies heavily on biblical imagery. For sure. Lots of crosses and yeah. homages to the Virgin Mary. And... Yeah. And it just stays as references. Exactly. Because no I thought, aim. yeah, with this building of... So you get these hints dropped of, like you said, the Bible and Swedenborg's theology and this kind of a small town people tending to believe in Swedenborg's things. I thought we were setting up for a more psychological version of The Conjuring or something. Mm, you know? Yeah, or like Conjuring and The Exorcist and the, like yeah, that so kind of something like, like that. the division between heaven and hell and then possession and evil spirits. And, and <sighs> there's one scene I want to talk about in particular with this character, Willis. <laughs> I started to realize I think they don't know what they're doing. They introduced this character Willis earlier on in the film as someone that George meets at the library when he's hanging out with his daughter. So Willis is played by Natalie Dyer, and Natalie Dyer was, well, she's most well-known for Stranger Things. And she has this run-in with George at the library where George obviously starts hitting on her because she's this young sort of scholarly girl, and you can tell he's used to getting attention from girls. So he starts hitting on this girl who's obviously much, much younger than him while his daughter is still in the library. someone over a game of tennis who Carfaccio. oh well i'm not surprised people get away with all kinds of horrible things are you speaking from personal experience so are you studying art i i teach over at saginaw oh god no no i was just looking for t-shirt ideas I'm all about literature in school. Which school? Cornell. Oh, it's quite a commute. I'm just taking a little hiatus. Writing for rich folk at Crow Hill Stables. Yeah, I know that place. Right next to the tennis club. I play it there sometimes. Huh. Well, uh, I hope you're a better loser than Caragaccio. George Clare. Right. Right, Claire. 
Claire. Yeah, um, my friend Eddie does your yard work. I think your wife hired him. Is that your little girl? Yeah, it's my name. He should not be here. He should not be about. He should not be here when your mother is out. It's really nice to meet you, Franny. Willis basically very creatively tells him off and says he shouldn't be doing this, makes it clear that she knows who he is and she knows his wife through a mutual acquaintance, which is the the Vale boy who works on the farm who used to live in the house. In this interaction, Willis tells him where she, I don't know if she volunteers there or works there, but it's like at these stables that aren't that far from his house. And so while he's on a run, he goes by the stables and she's there and they end up having sex together in a very weird way. And it all seems to just be there to establish that George is not a very nice guy because he drags his wife and family upstate for his own job and then he cheats on his wife. But then we get another scene with Willis and George again where clearly they've just had sex again. So we establish that George is continuously cheating on his wife with this much younger girl and Willis goes into this very weird speech about how she blames herself and she's not going to have sex with George anymore and how it was a bad idea to begin with and how she can't believe that she keeps falling for guys like George because they're all assholes and The whole gist of it is men get whatever they want because men have the power and then she fucks off and that's the end of their tryst together. (sighs) What you do to me, you do not know. My God. I've never done anything like this before, you know. Hey, what's wrong? What? I'm just talking. Sharing. What the fuck is wrong with me? Why do I keep doing this? Hey, Willis, I'm being serious. Nice to know you a bit better. Some ordinary, regular things. It's not what this is about. Ow, what the hell? What do you think because I fuck you, I'm fooled by you? God, I've been around guys like you my whole life. What the hell are you talking about? My dad made a fortune defending all of them. Thieves, con men, psychopaths. And they all got off. Because that's the way the world works for men. Hey, look, I see that you have some pretty awful ideas about men. No, I have awful ideas about everything. Now, get the fuck up. Come on, Willis. No. I'm done with this. Willis! Willis! 
<laughs> I think this is really where the film starts to break down. <laughs> <laughs> All I can figure is that they thought it was feminist to have her end their affair in that way. And they're like, oh, yeah, it's feminist if she tells him off and tells him how men always get what they want. And so she's not going to give him what he wants anymore. But it does not come off that way at all. It's really, I think, poorly written. And then Willis barely shows up after that at all, even when she could be really helpful and have an interesting arc later in the film. They just sort of drop her and by the end she becomes kind of a crying mess because she realizes that she had an affair with a guy who was probably a murderer. That's the end of Willis. And so I thought at that point, okay, maybe they're turning this into like a sort of female empowerment twist on a horror story, but it's just so poorly executed that if that's what they were trying to do, they utterly, utterly failed. I don't know. That's yeah. where it started to break down for me. I don't know if that's where it started to break down for you or if there was another moment in the film where you were like, wait, what the fuck? Because that was my wait, what the fuck moment. That's where I kind of realized I don't think there's a plan here. I think my moment was more... I don't know, like several points. The fact when they were at the museum, when George, the husband, was having a school trip at the museum and then he runs into his old teacher from his university when he was doing his PhD. And then how the professor is already very aggressive with George. And then you start to realize that, okay, he didn't leave with good terms. Okay, he forged a reference letter. Okay, now he didn't paint weird paintings. Okay, now he probably didn't even graduate. Like, you, when they're starting to use this talented Mr. Ripley plot, basically, and yeah. insert that into this story. And I was like, why would you even need this next plot hook? Like, focus on the thing that you're trying to do. Do not bring extra. It's just such a mess that you can't really even... It's hard to critique. Yeah, and what bothered me really was when... When um, Catherine found the Bible, she tried to tell her husband about the Bible once. And yeah. then she didn't show the Bible to anyone. No, the Bible doesn't come up again. No. No, you get those like, damn, 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 this is damn. And then you think that it's relevant, but really it isn't. You think that the people who lived there previously are relevant, but it turns out they're really not because like the true evil is the husband itself. And then when you think that the husband is the evil one and you think, okay, this might be a bit similar type of thing that admissible horror, you realize, no, the husband is actually talking to this weird past Calvinist priest dude who used to live there who owned that Bible and was the one making it like writing on everyone's name that they're damned and it's just like what are you trying to do honestly it's and also what bothered me was the friend Peg was her name I think which friend uh, Claire's friend the the weaver uh the Weaver, Justine. Justine, yeah, thank you. The fact that Justine, Justine's sole purpose 
it should just stand beside bring Catherine into a weird empowerment art seminar thing yeah. I don't know even what that was trying to be. I think that was in the failed feminist yep. arc. Yeah, and then just watch on the sidelines as everything unfolds and then be the kind of final girl in yeah. a weird way. She she is painted as a best friend and then somehow ends up as the main character. Yeah. Within the and last the three thing. minutes. She also... Justine isn't there for very long, even. Justine doesn't meet Catherine until 45 minutes into this film, which is a weird thing to realize that I just realized now. And then it's not that long after it that Justine is put into a coma from a car accident that George purposely caused to get her to shut up because she was being too suspicious. And so Justine is in this film for less than an hour, if you actually look at it. Yeah. She gets run off the road about an hour and a half into the film, and she's introduced 45 minutes into the film. So she's only in this film for 45 minutes, and then she shows up in the like last five minutes to be the thing that fixes it all because she got run off the road by George so she could prove that George is the evil one and he's the one who killed his wife, etc., etc. Before the film gets its super artsy end, it gets an end with Justine, but she's already woken up and she's in the hospital and she's doing her weaving. And then the police officer comes in and is like, are you ready to talk? And she's like, yes. So she's going to spill the beans and George is going to get put in prison. So instead of what George does is he gets on his boat that he inherited from his dead cousin, whose identity he sort of half stole, which is part of how we establish the fact that George has been evil from the outset and was not turned evil. Yeah, because it also hints that he might have actually killed his cousin. Yeah, but they say explicitly, pretty much, that he in part stole his cousin's identity and that George was never a painter in the first place, but that he took his cousin's paintings after his cousin died and passed them off as his own, which we find out at a very weird dinner with some of George's family where they say how the cousin's paintings disappeared. And I find it weird how this family never figures out that George <laughs> has them literally hanging up in his office. This man is not hiding them. Like he's he, he's a narcissist, but he's a bad one, you know? Like he's kind of a stupid psychopath, which doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, <laughs> or is he like, really smart just putting everything out there and people don't see it because it's too close? No, I think he's pretty dumb. Yeah. And that's, again, the storyline that would be involved in this being a religiously themed haunted house style horror film. The discussion of how good and evil works in this film as pertaining to the afterlife is this idea that whatever spirits may be in the home only commune with basically like people. So good spirits will commune and talk with good-hearted people. Evil spirits will only commune with other evil people. And it's this logic that they only talk to their own people because, at least how I understood it, those are the people who will do their bidding, right? So a good person won't do an evil spirit's bidding. 
but an evil person will do an evil spirit's bidding. So, you know, throughout the film, we know that Catherine has been interacting with the female spirits that are in this house. And at first we think they're evil, but we realize they're not evil at all. But then midway through the film, there's this random seance (laughs) and which also doesn't make any sense and doesn't come up again at all. Except for the fact that when they try and talk to the good spirit, they're able to talk to her, but then something bad is pulling her back. So then we establish that there's a bad spirit in the house too, and we think it's probably the husband who killed the wife in the first place. Which the clown seemed seemed also ready to know because they said that the wife died in mysterious circumstances. Yeah, so like it's... this seance provided no actual information yeah. except to be creepy, but... Eh, it wasn't very creepy, if we're being honest. And then it gets dropped. Then it's alluded to later that after George does a bunch of evil things and starts killing people, he starts talking to, like, himself. And so that alludes to the fact that it sounds like he's probably talking to the evil spirit that's in the house, which is the murderer's husband that killed himself and his family in the house. (sighs) Like, I just don't I don't know where to go with any of this because, again, like, it's not like there aren't interesting ideas in this. Like, I like the idea that the spirits will communicate with people who have the same agenda as them. That's interesting. It would also be interesting to, like, be in a house and have a completely different haunting experience than someone else. <laughs> like <laughs> Custom haunting. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's an interesting take because instead of someone being portrayed as, oh, they're the crazy one and only they see it. No, no, no. It's just people are seeing two different ghosts (laughs) and I love it. I think that's really good. But it just, again, it doesn't go anywhere because in this logic, it doesn't make any sort of statement about George himself because while we've established that George had to be evil from the beginning because that's how he was able to talk to the evil ghost in the first place. So would George have become a murderer even in spite of the fact that he was talking to the ghost? Like, does it matter that he was talking to the ghost at all? Yeah, because he was already Uh, killing people before they moved to the house. If he killed his cousin, which again, they don't come down on a hard line if he killed his cousin or not. So we don't know. So... Just because he's an asshole, does that make him evil? I don't know. I don't think the film can figure out what makes you evil either because they paint it in a really bad light when George has this affair, right? But Catherine has an affair too. She has an affair with the much younger, like, he must be older than a teenager, but he looks like a teenager. The boy from the previous family who is working at the house. One of the Vale bros. Yeah, she has an affair with him. But she's still the good doer. So is it just that she's not an asshole and she had an affair second? You know what I mean? Like this film doesn't have any logic of what makes a person evil at all. And can I point out, they're trying to make a connection with the house that all these previous tenants that died in the house are there trying to help the next tenant not to die in the house. And yet, while... (laughs) Justine is in her coma in the hospital. The ghost or the spirit of Catherine goes into the hospital and wakes her up. So why isn't she tied to the house? 
I don't know. Why is Justine now suddenly? Reasons. <laughs> because, no, 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 because that ties into, like, the failed feminist arc. Because they have these scenes, once Catherine dies, then she's a ghost, and she's, like, holding, like, arm in arm with the woman before her, and they leave out the first woman who died, but, like... She's too old, so I guess fuck her. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Like, if it's no. this whole feminist sisterhood thing, like, let's Lisa, just you're back. leave out the first woman. No, basically, it's just like, I, I was here to help you, but I guess you didn't listen, so now I'm going to guide you to the afterlife. Is that what they're trying yeah. to say? Yeah, now that Catherine is dead, is she going to be the weird girl in the in the light waiting for Justine to die? I guess so. <laughs> or waiting for the next tenants. But that's the thing is you would expect if this is the story, if you look at the timeline that they've established with all of the different tenants of the house and a bunch of them dying, and it's always in this fucked up marital dynamic where there's like sort of an evil husband and then a wife who's just going through the motions and kind of devoid of life and then she gets killed. Oops. <laughs> yeah. Why are we focusing on Catherine and George? What makes them different? Oh, wait, nothing makes them different because Catherine still dies and George gets away. Sort of. We haven't even gotten to the weird, ambiguous, artsy ending yet. But if that is then the point, and this is just a long line and history will repeat itself, da-da-da-da-da, why do we get the weird, artsy ending instead of alluding to the fact that there's going to be another set of tenants or why don't we destroy the house or why don't we let the ghost move on or why don't we you know cut to the year 2000 and a new family moves in yeah because that would have been a logical way to end the story to have this kind of never-ending cycle a new family moves in and then again the evil spirits take hold of the evil people and the good spirits take hold of the good people and evil kills good and then Again, a new family moves in. It's like this cycle. Instead of getting the endless cycle or getting the breaking of the cycle, we get neither. And we just get a, huh? It doesn't continue the cycle, nor does it break the cycle. Because the house still exists. The ghost still exists. The only thing that might be propelling all of the weird events that happen in this film, even that isn't given any sort of like logical conclusion. I don't care what it is. It could continue on to infinity. And what makes it even more annoying is the fact that one of the characters, I think it's Lloyd, who says that you know, in the end, good will always find a way to triumph over the evil, but it just kind of might take time sort of thing. He's acknowledging the only potential logic that might be propelling this film forward. He he states it explicitly, acknowledges the fact that this cycle exists and that there could be an end to this cycle. And instead of getting an end to the cycle or a clear continuing of the cycle, we get nothing like actually nothing we get a weird artsy end that's trying to be clever and instead it doesn't do anything i don't know anna do you want to describe how it ends well yeah we mentioned already that you get the scene where justine gives her statement to the police in the hospital then it cuts off to george going to the docks and uh, taking back his cousin's boat that he inherited and sailing away in your style 
sail away, sail away, sail away. Thank you. You're welcome. I got you. Towards, I guess it was an Inez painting that he was like going, because like in the beginning they show this kind of, when they're talking about Swedenborg, this painting of this spirit transitioning into the afterlife, heaven. And there's this image of a very stormy sea filled with dark clouds and dark water. And it's very like gloomy horror. And then you see a tiny spirit on the bottom right corner and then a lit up cross in a manner of kind of a gateway in the sky. So you get that image of a, of a spirit walking towards this stormy, scary area of turmoil and then going towards this light that is the cross so this is the painting that is shown in the beginning and while george starts to sail away sail away the water or the sea becomes also very stormy the clouds turn black very gloomy and then the sky starts to turn this kind of crimson color Oh, that's a good word, crimson. Yeah. And uh, you realize that you see the cross, but it is upside down. And then, okay, you get that. Okay, this is this is hell. Okay, this is not going. There's not a spirit ascending into, yeah, heaven, but it is a evil spirit descending into hell. And then you see this boat turning into more of a painting type of image, and then... The water, in a way, starts to burn and the, the boat bursts into flames. And then the image stops. So you see just a still image of this seascape with the reverted cross in the sky and this boat trying to reach the cross. But instead of reaching its destination, it is on fire and clearly symbolizing like descent into hell. And then I think it's important to note that like as it turns into a painting style, the camera pans out, it becomes a still of a painting, which is the same as the the very beginning, like we zoom in on a painting that becomes film. And then here it's film and turns into a painting as it zooms back out. Yeah. I don't know. Is that a way of the movie trying to like say that that good prevails? Evil always ends up in hell. And if you're an evildoer, you will not be able to reach the destination of heaven. I I don't know. But I don't it's... know what it's trying to say. And that's what I mean by like, it's such a hyper artsy end, but it doesn't seem to be saying much. They're like, oh, we'll reference these in his paintings. There's also, I found out, I saw someone else talk about this. I didn't see this myself because I, I did not pay close enough attention and i wouldn't be able to put two and two together like that but in the scene where where george is in the museum and the girls ask him a question about a painting that painting is called manhood and it's by a painter called thomas cole and george says to them look at the painting the man as he's on the boat he's taken his hands off the tiller which means like he's taken his hands off the thing that controls the boat and he's just letting whatever happens happens and the painting is called the voyage of life manhood he talks about how it's supposed to be symbolizing like this journey into becoming a man da, 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 da. and in that very artsy end where 
George is sailing. He also has to take his hands off of the tiller, like the thing that controls the boat, because the waves become too much and he just kind of gives in and then it turns into a painting. I don't know what it's supposed to mean. They're making all these references that don't make any sense. I guess it's he's on a journey into hell because that's where you end up. That's all I can figure. I don't know. Does it matter? Why, why did we care? Yeah, just the film would have been a lot better if they would have ended the story with Justine giving her statement. But I think they wanted to have this cycle type of thing. They started with a painting and then ended in a painting. But why does it matter? I don't know. Like, and oh, why does wait, Inez it matter? Because he was a landscape painter. I think it matters in as much as Innes was related to Swedenborg. Yeah. Again, it just seems to be trying to be clever, but you can't be clever unless you have a point to make. It's just this jumbled up mess of people throwing references into a film and it just doesn't make sense. We'll have these two painters that we'll reference in the end and we'll have paintings going into film, but we'll only do that at the beginning and the end. Then there's Swedenborg and he's connected to the painters, but... How else does painting relate to the film? Okay, well, she restores paintings, so... Also, she clearly restores, like... Because she was restoring a huge mural in a church. So already she's, like, restoring holy work. And there's also something there that's kind of dropped as well. And I did reading about the book. And apparently in the book, it plays up more her Catholicism. Like, she's more devout in the book. Where the only reference to her actually holding Catholic beliefs is when she tells Justine when she first meets her that she's a conflicted Catholic girl. And then that's played more in opposition to George, who is very clearly pretty atheist. And in the film, he just comes off as kind of wishy-washy and he dismisses Swedenborg, but how he dismisses him comes off much more as an intellectual dismissal on the fact that like he doesn't think spiritualism makes much sense not that he doesn't hold any beliefs in and of himself and again i haven't read the book so i don't know how well this is played or how well it works but a thread that existed in the book that helps ostensibly to drive a wedge between these two characters disappears and becomes mushy in the film it doesn't make sense that much if if Catherine is devoutly Catholic to then be super interested in Swedenborg's ideas because that would go against strictly Christian beliefs. And the women in the house who died before, there was a, a dichotomy each time of holding different beliefs than their husband, right? The first one who died, they say in the film that part of the reason why her husband killed her was because she thought like Swedenborg's ideas were so interesting and really believed in them and he was a strict Calvinist. And he wasn't having any of that. And he thought that she was damned because she was holding different beliefs. This idea of having different beliefs is completely muddied between George and Catherine because we don't get any strict idea of what their beliefs are to begin with. And so when we introduce Swedenborg, all we kind of get is the fact that George sort of half-heartedly dismisses Swedenborg and Catherine thinks it's interesting and she picked up the book because she liked Innes' artwork. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. It, like we've said several times now, another thing that falls into the same kind of category of a subject that be, that's being introduced but not really explored is the fact that Catherine suffers from bulimia. It's referenced. You see her 
throw up. You see George criticize her for not eating and then her making explanations. But then you don't really see why it is relevant to introduce this kind of characteristic to a character. No, the only thing I can think of is that it ends up being used as a kind of plot device, but it's so unnecessary because Catherine was recommended protein shakes by a certain doctor, but she seems to drink them some days, but not other days. So clearly she's still struggling with her eating disorder. And towards the end of the film, right before Catherine dies, she's trying to leave the house with her daughter and she packs everything up and George finds out and he gets really angry. And then he gives her a protein shake and she takes it from him. And he kind of does it as like a power trip because he's like, oh, I noticed that you didn't drink your protein shake. Here you go. So she drinks some of it. And then we get a scene for like a few minutes with them fighting and then she goes outside and then she has trouble walking and she realized she's been drugged and he put drugs in the protein shake. And I think that that is a horrible, horrible way to use that because if they wanted her to be drugged, which I think is kind of a cheap cop-out way to keep her from leaving the house anyway, but by the by, they could have had it be literally anything else. But instead, they have him drug her protein shake, which just feels like kind of a kick in the gut to someone who does have bulimia or an eating disorder to be like, never trust the person who gives you food because they might have drugged it. You know, it's just and it doesn't come up in any sort of other way except to be like, oh, she's sad and depressed and she doesn't like her life. So she doesn't eat. And what she does eat, she throws up. Yeah, it is used as a as a, a weapon in a way. Yeah, it's used as a weapon and a plot device. Barely. It's not used at all to flesh out her character, really. No, no. Because it, it, it is, again, a feeling like like the writers were like, oh, okay, we need a, a, an edgy thing for Catherine. Otherwise, she'll just be a weird housewife. That's a bit sad. Okay, let's yeah. give her bulimia. That will give her, like, street yeah. cred or something. I don't know. Yeah. If she wouldn't have bulimia, he could have very easily drugged her with any food they had. No, there's no reason why she needs bulimia. It's it's a cheap shot. I feel like we could go on and on yeah. about all this BS, but yeah. that's kind of the gist. D- don't watch it. It's not worth it. The first 30 minutes fake you out. It had potential and it had a good trailer, which just means don't trust trailers. Yep. Yep. What should we watch for next week? What was the plan? Was there a plan? I don't remember. We were talking about Sound of Metal, but then... Mm-hmm. Um, what came up on Netflix was Our House, uh-huh. which is also a horror movie, but it's a British one, and that should actually be good. Okay, well then next week will be round two of trying a horror movie, and hopefully this one is better. I don't see how it can't not be better. Yeah, the bar is really <laughs> low at this point. Like, yeah. Really low. Right. So next week, well, Our yeah, House. I'll- Ye our house. I think it was called our house. In the Wait. Middle of the- <laughs> Watch it be called something. Uh, film or his house. Our house. Nope. Wait. 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 
Something house. I swear it's something house. Your house. Could it be? I see an our house and a his house. I think it's his house. His house. His house. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. His house. His house. (laughs) Next week, his house. Okay. Sounds good. Right. I'll see you next week then. See you or hear you then. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.